Hi, this is Ben Lowell, the Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, with a message entitled, Can God Be Trusted? So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. God has a perfect track record of making and keeping his promises. There's never been a promise that God has made that he's not kept or that he plans to keep in the future. God is perfect when it comes to keeping promises. He's batting a thousand. He never misses, ever. Let me illustrate. I promise you that in the year 2001, the Twin Towers, New York, will come down as a result of terrorists flying their planes into them, and that event will mark a profound change in the world. I promise that it's going to happen. In fact, I guarantee it's going to happen. I'll even put my reputation at stake in that promise. Now, of course, you're going to say that's just all silly talk. How can I speak of the past using a future tense? I should have said that in 2001, the the Twin Towers did come down, and, and I could say that I guarantee that I'm accurate in describing that historical event. But then you would say, well, there's nothing remarkable about that. Past events, if we understand them rightly, are a sure thing. And a promise something in the past is only to indicate something that we know is not going to change. Now, did you know that God speaks about the future in the past tense? Some 850 years before Christ suffered on the cross, this is what God said recorded in Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Did you notice that? God speaks of the future, in this case, about 850 years into the future, using the past tense. That's because when God's promises come true, which they all do, it's not remarkable at all. The minute God promises something, that promise is like me promising the events around 9-11 that they will happen in 2001. God's future promises are as sure as yesterday's news. To write down the future promises of God is like recording history. That's because God's Word created the universe. God's Word, says Psalm 29, verse 9, strips the forest bare. God's Word pierces the human heart. God's Word creates the future so that the future becomes certain, as certain as a date in history. Now, this is what our study in Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6 is about. The only way to have an acceptable relationship with God is to believe Him when He makes a certain, sure promise about a future event. It is to say, I believe with all my heart that God's future promises are to be trusted. Now, if you do that, God will declare you free from sin and a man or a woman of righteousness. And it's exactly what salvation entails. God promises that on the day of judgment, that if you trust in Christ, that all the sins for which you should rightfully be condemned have already been dealt with in Christ. Furthermore, the just reward for Christ's righteous life will be given you. And all that's required is that you repent and believe. But can God be trusted when he promises that? Please understand the question. Let me ask it another way. Does God have credibility? What do you think? Oh, I know that if you're a Christian, you feel absolutely obligated to answer, well, yes. But I'm not asking the question intellectually. I'm asking the question practically and experientially and even asking it out of the place where all actions flow. 
Does the way you live your life indicate that you put any confidence in God when he speaks? Or do you think that God is like an unethical politician who will tell you almost anything to get your vote? I mean, what do you think? I want to show you how Abram resolved that question. I want us to see what he did so that we can conclude practically and emotionally and experientially and willfully that God can be trusted. So let's read Genesis 15 verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him his righteousness. So let's get the background. Abram has just come out of a battle. Abram went to war with 318 armed men against four powerful kings and won an amazing victory. But it was all fine and well to win a surprising victory. But in doing that, Abram had exposed himself. He might expect a fierce retaliation, or he might expect that the kings of Canaan would now view him as a threat. And he's understandably afraid. It's one thing to win a battle in a night raid when the enemy is unsuspecting. You know, it's quite another thing to defend oneself when all the world knows where you live and you don't have a walled city for a fortification. And so Abram lives in fear. And on top of that, Abram had refused to share in the spoils of war, thinking it was immoral to let the king of Sodom boast that he had made Abram rich. So he incurred not only a loss from the war, no gain at all, but there is more. Along the way, Abram had met a great priest king named Melchizedek, and realizing this man to be priest of God Most High, he had tithed. He had taken a full 10% of everything that he had, and he gave it to Melchizedek and had significantly reduced his wealth. It turns out that this attempt to rescue Lot had cost him significantly, and he's afraid, and he's vulnerable, and he's needy. And in this state, God comes to him with a promise. Look how chapter 15 begins. The word of the Lord came to Abram, it says. You know, that wording is the same kind of wording that you're going to find repeated in the prophets of the Old Testament. It's the standard formula identifying God's word coming to a prophet. And so when we read it, the word of the Lord came to Abram. It's like the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and so on. Indeed, it's true that Abram is a prophet of God in the land of Canaan. And as a prophet, he receives two future promises from God. Here's the first. I am your shield. I know you're afraid of those four powerful kings and that even now you fear that they might be plotting revenge, but I am your shield. I will protect you. Remember, I've made a promise to you. Your offspring will inherit this land. People will not be able to uproot you from here. Your protection is greater than a walled city. I'm your protection. Well, Sounds like a pretty good promise. All Abram has to do is take God at his word. Here now is the second promise. I'm your very great reward. I know you feel that this war and your tithe has reduced your wealth, that you're not rewarded for your efforts, but I'm your reward. You lack nothing. I'm going to see to that. Since I am your God, I have from the beginning promised you that I would use my resources as God and put them to your advantage. Now, before we go on, 
let's ask ourselves what we might make of this. You know, there are examples where we might take God at his word and and count on him. Perhaps we might apply that to giving sacrificially. Perhaps we might apply it to following a call of God in missions, or we might feel ourselves to be vulnerable. But however we apply this, we need to find places where God makes promises to us, and we need to count on them. But we need to remember that God does not promise that we're all going to be rich, nor that we're always going to be safe. I mean, the list of Christian martyrs testifies against such a notion. Indeed, Hebrews 11, that great chapter which describes men and women of faith, says in verse 36 that some in faith suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. It's so important that we don't take the unique promises made specifically to Abram for the purpose of creating the people of Israel and apply them to every believer in Christ. I mean, to do so, I think, would be to misuse the Bible and make it say something that it doesn't say. Instead, we should be careful to apply promises made specifically to all believers and apply them to us. There we find that Christ will never leave us or forsake us. There we find that that Christ will cause all things to work to our eternal long-term advantage and that even death itself can't remove us from the love of God. There we find that there are eternal rewards, that there's a celestial city whose maker and builder is God and that our heritage in him is unassailable. I mean, take those promises to heart and act as if they're true, for, for God never breaks his word. See, that's the example that we take from Abram. When God makes us a promise, we need to act as if it's true. You know, in Abram's case, he is to find that his position in the promised land is not nearly as vulnerable as he might have thought. You know, his position doesn't depend upon the attitudes of others towards him, but rather on the promises of God. Now, what happens next in some ways is astonishing. Abram tells God he's not satisfied with the present arrangement. Yes, he's prepared to believe that God will keep him safe, But that's not why he came to Canaan in the first place. God has promised him that his descendants would be as the dust of the earth, and as it now is, he has no heir at all. Will God now also promise him again that this part of the promise is as good as the last one? God never promised that this life would be easy. But he did promise that he would be there with us, guiding our footsteps along the way, in our working, deciding, moving, marrying and burying, through grief or joy in family and community, God is present. He is active in all the seasons of life. But the truths of God's faithfulness can become muted by the noise of our present circumstances. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free booklet called Restored, a story of lives redeemed. It walks us through the book of Ruth and the seed of hope that one family's redemption story offers to us all. If you're in need of encouragement in your own story, this booklet is for you. To request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Abram has complained that a man named Eliezer of Damascus, he's a Syrian, and he was in line to inherit everything Abram had the minute he died. From Abram's vantage point, he saw no evidence that the promise of descendants that would cover the earth was coming true. 
And so this man who had already trusted God in so much proves himself to be so much like you and I. When he doesn't see it, he starts doubting. Can you identify with that? He has no heir, and at least at present, it would have seemed like one of the promises of God was not being fulfilled. You know, after all, the reason he's vulnerable is because he's come to the land after God had promised him that he'd make him a great nation. He was 75 years old then. Isaac would not be born until he was 99. Time was slipping away. Abram is telling God, I came here to become a great nation, and it is that, and not my safety or satisfaction, that I want to discuss with you. I want to talk to you about the great promise you made me, the promise that led me here, promise to have children. So God called Abram outside on that fateful night, and Abram and the God of creation went for a walk. There's not one cloud in the sky, and the stars were shining in their brilliance. And as Abram gazed at them, God told him that not only would he keep the promise, but the promise was actually larger and not smaller than he had anticipated. Now, how was that possible? Now, I do know this. The Jewish nation never was so large that it could not be counted. But it's not what God ultimately had in mind on that brilliant night. Listen to how Paul described it in Galatians 3, verse 6. Consider Abraham, Paul said. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are the children of Abraham. See, from the very start, God had in mind something much more than Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. Oh, God had that in mind for sure, but he had in mind a great company of humanity that would become Abraham's children in faith in Jesus Christ. God brought Abram to this land so he could build a church composed of people from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. It would be a church in which Jew and Gentile would become brothers and sisters through faith, a faith just like Abram's faith. And Abram standing out there on that starry night, this man of increasing age, this man who by you know, any human standard was too old to ever see one son, never mind a people so great that no one could count, this man counted the stars that night and said about 4,000 years ago, you could almost hear him murmuring these words, I believe, I believe, I trust the promise maker. This God is credible. I believe when he makes promises that he always keeps his word. And God responds to him. God says, Abram, listen to me. Since you believe, I'm going to add a credit to your eternal banking account. I'm going to credit righteousness there. That means that Abram, this sinful man who came from a family who worshipped pagan deities, a, a family in which sexual perversion was commonplace, this sinful man who had once sold his wife into a harem and still had the money in his genes from that awful deal, this sinful man named Abram was going to be declared free from sin and righteous. That is, he was going to have a relationship with God free from any hindrances or sins or transgressions. Now, Abram didn't know how that was possible. He didn't know that God was going to send his son to die on a cross for the sins of the whole world, that God would offer forgiveness to anyone who believed. Abram didn't know anything about that. He only knew that God had somehow devised a way to make it unnecessary to punish him for his sins so he could enjoy the wonderful promises that God had made to him. And that's what makes this so amazing. You see, we in our day can see how God kept his promises to Abram and how God sent his son to die on a cross. I mean, all the evidence is before us. See, Abram didn't have that evidence, but that night 
He believed that God was credible. What does that mean to us? Well, let's review. God has a perfect track record of making and keeping promises. The Bible recording 1,600 years of history has demonstrated that. We know that God shows himself to be a glorious God by declaring that his great power will work for the benefit of all who are called by his name. When God called Abram and told him that he was his shield and reward, we who read these things today know that we as Abram's children are also rewarded by the very same God. You know, it's for this reason that we, like Abram, should concern ourselves with a great deal more than the need for safety and security, but with the promise of a people group that cannot be counted. We should care deeply about the growth of Christ's church and of the glory of God who calls a people unto himself. You know, at some point in time, it should dawn on us that it's really not about us. I mean that at some point in our prayers that we should pray more than just about ourselves. At some point in time, we need to ask God, why am I here? Why have you brought me into existence? What plan did you have to bring glory to yourself through me? See, what else have we learned? Well, we've learned that God has already kept his promise to Abraham through the creation of a worldwide church. We should also remember that the mark of a truly righteous person is not what he or she does. It's rather whether he or she believes that God makes promises and keeps them that find their fruition in the cross. Abram did nothing for God. Instead, he let God do something for him, and he believed that God would do it. And that's the same for us. God has absolutely no interest in what you think that you can do for him. But God is intensely interested in whether or not we believe his promises. He's interested because our faith, or lack of it, indicates to God that we think he's worthy of glory or whether or not we think he's a fraud. And if we think he's a fraud, you know he's going to defend his great name against our blasphemy. God defends nothing with more vigor than the glory of his name, and he is terrible in wrath when it comes to defending his glory. So let me explain that for a moment. Everything depends upon whether you and I believe. Some time ago, I remember a conversation I had. It was one of those second-hand conversations, if you know what I mean. Someone approached me and said, how do I counsel a young wife? You know, before she got married, she was extremely promiscuous. She slept with many men, and in the fullness of time, she had heard God's promises and she had believed. She'd found promises like the one in Hebrews 9, 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we might serve the living God? And so she repented of her sin and she turned to Christ. But years later, with a new husband, she began to feel overwhelmed with feelings of guilt because of her past. And finally, she came to a conclusion that God was going to to punish her for her past sexual misdeeds. She's constantly filled with guilt and with dread, thinking in some fashion punishment would descend on her. And so I was asked, I mean, what should I say to her? And I responded by saying to the individual who was counseling her, just tell her that she's right. God's going to punish her, but not for the reason she thinks. See, God has promised her that the blood of Jesus cleanses her completely but she's looking at the promises that come from the cross, and she concludes God has no credibility whatsoever. She's concluded that he's like an unethical politician who makes promises and then breaks them. She's impugning the reputation of God. Well, of course, the good news was that once the matter was explained to her in that way, 
She saw it immediately and trusted God, and that sense of dread was banished from her forever. See, let me say it again. Do you know what God wants? He wants you to believe him, to trust him, to count on the things that he has promised that they are indeed so. And one night 4,000 years ago, an old man by the name of Abram was counting the stars, and then he stopped and he said to God, I just believe you. And God said, I will credit that statement to your account as righteousness. Now, of course, Abram has just heard two promises. Your offspring will be as the stars of the heaven. And secondly, because you believe me, I will count you to be a righteous man. Of course, Abram didn't know how God would fulfill either one of those promises, but he did know that God would always do what he had said. And that's our hope as well. See, this we know. When God makes promises, he always finds ways to keep them. And Abram was content in this. This man who was vulnerable to attack, this man who had no heir, this man who was growing old, this man who had sinned, had been promised that God would take care of absolutely everything. And he whispered out that night, I believe. And that whisper, I believe, is still the whisper that we need to hear in our own hearts today to listen to the promises that come to us in the cross, to face the enormity of what God has said he will do for those of us who have believed him, and to say to God, those enormous promises must be true. They come from you after all. I believe. John, I'm excited. This is a salvation message, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it absolutely is. It's, it's what uh, Paul told the Philippian jailer, trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so it's all about trusting him. If God has made promises to us in the cross, then the question is not how good can I be or what can I do? The question only is, has God made those promises and are they true? I suppose they are, will I trust in him? So everyone who has ever come to know God through Christ has come there only one way, and they've come there by faith and by faith alone. So that's great news. So you don't have to be good enough to come to God. You simply have to hear his promise to you, and you need to believe. So, um, you know, come, anyone who's listening to this, and listen to the promise in Christ. I believe. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada, we're so humbled to see how God is using this ministry to speak the truths of his word into lives across the nation and beyond. It's our mandate to faithfully present the scriptures exactly as they are to everyone without barrier. And it is so encouraging to see how many listeners stand with us in this commitment. Your gifts are the momentum that helps sustain this Bible teaching and engagement ministry and propels these messages to eyes and ears and hearts from all walks of life. We hear from listeners every week of the impact that Back to the Bible Canada is having on their spiritual journey. Sam wrote, I have learned so much over the past few years from the teachings of this ministry, which in turn has helped me lead my family spiritually. Thanks, Sam. Now, to support this Bible teaching ministry, or to learn about the free Bible resource this month being offered, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible 
www.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca